Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so let me just jump in. On May 19, 2010, the Royal Thai Army deployed tanks, snipers, and war weapons to disperse the thousands of protesters who had taken over the commercial center of Bangkok. In the previous two months, these protesters, known as the Red Shirts, had effectively brought to a halt the Ratchaprasong intersection, main space of elite consumption in the city and a nexus of economic and physical mobility. The mobilization demanded elections and an end to political and economic inequality. Key to these protests were motorcycle taxi drivers who slowed down, filtered, and severed the movement of people, commodities, and information. By doing so, they claim a role in national politics as well as ownership and control over the Thai state and its capital city, revealing growing fracture in the power of state forces. Just before the military feast clenched down on the remaining protesters, those drivers left the area, taking advantage of their mobility and profound knowledge of the city's shortcuts and backdoors. On May 20th, when the violence stopped, at least 92 bodies had accumulated. 7-Eleven store, bank branches, the stock exchange, along with Central Ward, the larger shopping mall in Thailand, were set on fire. My research explored the dynamics of capitalism, mobility, and political mobilization in post-1997 uh, crisis Thailand through an ethnographic study of some of the 200,000 motorcycle taxi operating in Bangkok. So while studies of contemporary capitalism concur that mobility and exchange play a more prominent role in the operation of global capital, actual little attention has been paid to its operators, their everyday struggles, and demands. Similarly, scholars have largely ignored the emergence of space of economic flows, such as the Ratchaprasong intersection or Wall Street, uh, as political arena in which to oppose economic, social, and political exploitation and exclusion. So this specific geographical shift from street to intersection as the most prominent space of politics in Thailand have been only confirmed by the yellow shirt mobilization in early last year and by the few protesters that have taken place since the military coup in May of 2014. So following Anna Singh's reminder then, and I quote, mobility means nothing without mobilization, today I focus on the conjuncture between these two aspects of the driver's practices to explore both ethnographically and conceptually the codependence of capitalist accumulation, everyday mobility, and political mobilization in contemporary Thailand. By acting at the nexus of these processes, I argue, the driver's collective action and the red shirts around them reveal the fragility of state power and its inability to control its own subjects. It is precisely this fragility that is behind the ongoing desperate attempt to silence political opposition and to solidify the army's power in Thailand. Today, however, I will focus only on the event of 2010, and then if you want, in the question and answer, we can go more into the present. So my argument today is twofold. In the first section, the everyday mobility of motorcycle taxis is the focus. I explore the phenomenological dimension of riding through the city from the motorcycle seat. By analyzing how drivers bring the city into being as they carve channels through it, I reflect on how political-economic relations of exploitation are constructed by everyday practices and inscribed onto the body of the drivers. In the second session, I show how this everyday mobility structures political mobilization. 
I analyze how the driver's position in urban circuit generate political consciousness among them. And finally, I explore how this consciousness of political economic inequality, in turn, morphed in, mer into political struggle and transformation of everyday life during the protest. So in this protest I show, mobility emerged both as a characteristic and a strength of contemporary capitalism in Thailand, but also as a fragile spot, one that always remained open to disruption by the very same people who sustain channels of economic, social, and conceptual exchange, yet remain excluded by it. So before I get lost too much into theoretical reflection, let me bring you to the streets of Bangkok and give you a sense of the concrete nature of the process I'm describing. So seen from above, Bangkok resembles an octopus. Marked on its left side by the sinuous bend of the Chao Phraya River and squeezed in the middle with its tentacle descending, descending on the sides. Getting closer, the same tentacular shape are visible in its urban structure. As we scale down, however, the structure of the city starts to break and the octopus contort into cramped and convoluted patterns. Long and narrow streets branch out of major road and conquer the space between them, often without connecting one to the other. Mobility inside, sorry, mobility inside those alleys, too narrow for buses and vans and often clogged with cars, largely remain the domain of motorcycle taxi drivers, especially during traffic gridlocks when drivers make most of their income. Atop a bike is the only place in Bangkok where time flows as in a clock, fluid, regular, and predictable. In the fractured time of the traffic jam, the motorbike become a tool for weaving together Bangkok's urban landscape and drivers, its operators. The city is traversed every day by 200,000 of these motorcycle taxis, most of them internal migrants from the outer provinces. Collectively, they operated between four and six million trips per day, about 10 times the number of trips traveled by Bangkok subway and SkyTrain combined. Among them is Hong, whom you see in here. Hong was born in a small village in the northeastern provinces of Hong Bangalumpu and migrated to Bangkok as a youngster, attracted, like many of his colleagues, by the prospect of a better professional life and a more excited experience. Following his dreams, Hong attended high school in the city, joining two siblings who had worked in a local garment factory. After finishing school, unable to afford university training, he ventured into the torture spiral of low-paid occupation and exploitative bosses that many of the drivers describe as their experience in the formal economy of the city. Adapting to the industrial discipline of labor and form of workplace hierarchy, as well, to the, as well as to the urban bias toward hillbillies, which is very common from people from the Northeast, proved difficult from Hong. In 2001, he, become, he began to work in a Korean-owned factory a few blocks away from where he operates today as a driver. Two years in there were enough to make me decide I would never work in a factory again, he told me, remembering with disgust and contempt the daily discipline of labor and his belligerent boss. In 2006, fed up with, and I use this word, being insulted on the all the time and considered a stupid water buffalo from the countryside, end quote, Hong invested all of his savings in buying a motorcycle taxi vest from a friend for, for 25,000 baht, which is about 500 pounds. He was now a motorcycle taxi driver. Since then, Hong's morning start very early. 
So let me describe you one of this morning I share with him. It is 2.49 a.m. Hong sleeps next to me on a thin mattress thrown in a cramped wooden room on a narrow alley on the Tombury side of Bangkok, across the river from the central business district and his motorcycle taxi station. Hong snores loudly, taking advantage of the few hours of sleep that his life as an invisible mover of the city allows. In a few minutes, the alarm will go off, and as every morning, he will wake up, run across the tiny courtyard into a small wooden toilet in front of his room, and shower, scooping buckets of cold water from a big cement hub. Back in his room, Ong will put on mentholated powder to find the daily sweat and get dressed, before walking silently out of the small courtyard and drive into the unusually quiet city. Once Ong is done with his preparation, we start our bikes and drive away into the night. In a few minutes, we are merging into a major highway, speeding our way across the city, head tucked in to fight the chill of the night as we make our way into the eastern part of Bangkok, where it works. Before crossing the river, we turn into an industrial area. Here, the day has already begun, and the sound of machinery covers the roar of our bikes. We stop in front of a large iron door that opens into a printing press. An older man drops a bundle of magazines in Hong's arm without saying a word. Hong shoves them into a saddle bag across his bike, and we leave behind the sign of mechanical production and go back to the silence of the city. We ride across the Chao Praia River and enter the emptied out financial district. We ride through back doors and parking lot against the direction of traffic and across four lane roads following a mental map that Hongs activates every day, a sequence of landmark that he has internalized but that means nothing to anybody but him. At every stop, he pulls out a small number of newspaper and leaves them outside the newsstand before driving to the next stop in a regular sequence. As we progress along Ong's usual circuit, the city around us starts to awaken. Vendors push lonely cart street corners, the first buses start to move, and more car fills the street. Continuing along Hong's path, we deposit the last bundle and head finally to his station off Saturn Road, a few streets away from the financial district where he will start to take clients on his back seat. On the way, we stop at one of the only present 7-Eleven shop for the first of, man, of many energy drinks that keep Hong awake and alert during his interminable day of work. When I worked in construction, Hong remembers, it was Yaba, which is the Thai name for methamphetamine. The boss used to put it into the water we were given to drink. All of us worked high. We never stopped working. You feel like you have endless energy until you come back home and your whole body hurts, end quote. Even if today no one is dragging drivers like Kong, a circuit of exploitation still structures their life in the city and leaves them exhausted at the end of the day with a few pounds in their pocket. In the system of economic exploitation, Hong, like many other drivers, operate as connectors, allowing the city to function, its inhabitants to move, and its commodity to circulate. Their mobility, in fact, not only need the city together by ferrying customers across the urban landscape, to their homes, school, and jobs, but also by mobilizing commodities, mail, and document, which enable social sphere and other imaging community, such as the one that newspaper helped constructing. 
especially in the traffic gridlocks that made Bangkok infamous. And let me give you a sense of what this means, basically, from their point of view. Especially in the traffic gridlock that made Bangkok infamous, the meandering mobility of motorbikes conquered the city, occupying and finding paths in the empty gaps between motor vehicles. If seen from a car or a bus, the street seems blocked. From atop a motorbike, small winding highway become visible in the metal gaze. As cars slowly move, trying in vain to shift to another lane, this path rapidly emerge and disappear, open and close, framed by the rear view mirror and backlights. In these morphing interstitial spaces, motorcycle taxi find an ideal habitat space of flow invisible and impervious to any other technology of mechanical transportation. I glued on, the, glued on the street, the motorcycle drivers read this movement, constantly looking for a path that will open up and guessing which one will close next. In this situation, all the driver's skills are summoned and the whole body adjusts to the rhythm of traffic. Eyes, hands, feet, the driver read and react to the pace of moving traffic deploying complex, embodied, trained, and refined automatism. Aligning their bodies to the rhythm of the city, so we say, aligning their bodies to these rhythms become a daily struggle for the drivers, a challenge not without difficulties and consequences. Wake up before people start leaving for their homes, have lunch just before office release their workers for the break, rest after the flow of urban workers recede into their workplace, sleep when the rhythm of the city significantly slow down. All of this always challenge, but the real possibility of accidents and injuries. The failure to organize the individual body rhythm to the urban offbeats result in lower income and a reputation in their group or their neighborhood of being unreliable, lazy, or just drunks. The drivers, in this sense, predict, adjust, act, and are acted upon by the rhythm of urban economies and flows, which determine their economic and social standing, both in their group and in their neighborhood. It is precisely their ability to read the rhythm of the city and to keep the pace of mobility, especially when the old city gets blocked, that allows them to create and keep open paths indispensable for the daily life of millions of urban dwellers. Through this path, both material and immaterial, the drivers weave together a trip of a time, the physical, economic, and social terrain of the city. They do so by relying on their ability to create channel and find routes that keep the seem precluded, both physically and socially, to most other city dwellers. The ability, however, does not only play out in terms of movement. The drivers, in fact, balance their life between long waiting time at their station and rush slalom to the smoggy traffic of Bangkok. Sitting at street corner, they become privileged source of local knowledge about territory, relevant landmark, and shop in the area in which they operate, but also provide a custom presence in the neighborhood, from good food to direction, from friends' houses to shortcut, from a hand to move furniture to someone to keep an eye on your house when you're away, city dealers turn to them whenever they need something at their doorstep. For the drivers, waiting, therefore, become a form of engagement in the social life of the neighborhood. This waiting, much like the productive boredom analyzed by, sorry to quote my own advisor, 
Michael Esfriel in his study of uh, Cretan artisan. This waiting is fecund with expectation and interaction, as well with learning and discussion. If for the artisan apprentice, waiting become a form of stealing with the eyes, the craftsman's skill, for the driver's waiting is a time for mapping with the eyes, the neighborhood around them, both as a physical and as a social space. In this social environment, they become not just vessels of mobility, but also observers and guardians of movement in and out of the area, as well as readily available cheap labor for house repair or moving things. It is precisely through this practice of both presence and mobility that the driver role as urban connectors is performed. Through this channel, the drivers can transform, challenge, or give in to establish political economic relation. So let me give you an example of how um, this works and what the potential for drivers distracted, bored, yet consistent presence at street corner is in terms of opening new channels for them. Kong is a middle-aged driver who operates in Bangsu district, inside one of the many new development mushroom, mushrooming at the outskirts of Bangkok. While their schedule and location and few potential customers limit trips with passengers to sporadic short rides to the main road, Kong and the other drivers in his group make a good income, up to a thousand baht, which is about 20 pounds per day, by delivering documents and paying bills for the middle-class residents of the neighborhood. Even more importantly, and potentially more remunerative, during their waiting time, they create and sustain channel with local dwellers that can open unexpected route of social and economic mobility. So the first time I visited Kong, he was sitting out of, on his bike, out of the neighborhood, drinking a beer that an older woman in the neighborhood had offered to the group to thank them for watching her home while she was away. It was clear since the first meeting that Kong was immersed in a bundle of daily interaction predicated upon his reliable and consistent presence at the street corner. They see me here every day, Kong told me. We are a community and we help each other. If they need something, they know that they can find me here, sitting on my bike. I help the neighbor to take care of their garden, I look after their house, I give them a hand to move furniture, they know they can trust me, end quote. One day, passing by, I stopped at his station, but Kong was not there. The other driver directed me to a small apartment in a crumbling building right outside the neighborhood. Kong was sitting outside with a group of friends, without his vest and visibly drunk. What happened? I asked him. I asked. I'm celebrating. My daughter has been admitted into a private school of accountancy. We fought, but now... Finally, she can have a better future, not like her father working all day in the street, he laughed. That she has a scholarship, I inquired, curious to how he could afford the school tuition. No, Mr. Pong will pay, he said, rising his chin toward the, the biggest house in the neighborhood at the end of the road. Kong had talked to me before about Pong and his shady business deal that they had. After years of using Kong to deliver documents around the city and keeping an eye to his house when he left, Pong, a wealthy businessman involved in construction, had started to ask him to deliver envelopes with money around the city in exchange for a generous fee. Over time, the amount inside this envelope grew from a few thousand baht to hundreds of thousands, well beyond Kong's monthly and at times even yearly income. Kong diligently carried the money to their destination without asking questions about their provenience 
and keeping to himself the fear of being caught by local police or by criminal with this pile of cash. At the beginning, I was so scared when I had to carry this money, he told me. What if I get attacked, I thought all the time. What if I get stopped? I used to tuck the envelope inside my pants on the back and cover it with my shirt and vest. But then I find a better method. I park my motorbike inside Mr. Pong garage and I screw the, for the front part of my scooter. I put the money in and then close everything so no, was no, no one knows that I have money or where the money is. As Kong deliveries continue without glitches, the sum kept growing to a one-time peak of one million baht, which is about uh, I was so scared, he recount. I had never seen so much money. I had no idea where to put them. The whole bike was full of money. In the front, in the back, behind the line, I was a moving bank, he laughs. As an effect of this sustained relationship, Kong and Mr. Pong created an increasing tight circuit of reciprocal favor. This exchange of favor solidified over a year and culminated the day before when the businessman had offered to pay his daughter tuition, opening up a new channel for social and economic mobility and potentially transforming the class position, if not of Kong, at least of his daughter. Through his sustained and regular presence in the neighborhood, in other words, Kong was able to transform repeated interaction into more concrete and empowering form of access and in many ways of patronage. Much like Bourdieu's concept of economic, symbolic and cultural capital, Kong convert different form of mobility, physical, social, and economic, one into the other, taking advantage of his ability to master their distinct rhythms. In this sense, the phenomenological dimension of Kong's everyday presence in the city produced and transformed his economic and social standing. So to recap, so far I have shown the centrality of motorcycle taxi drivers to the daily operation of Bangkok and argued that an analysis of the phenomenology of their mobility and the rhythms of it allow us to understand the driver's political and economic position and explore how they produce spatial and social channels in the city, which then themselves try to navigate in order to move um, through their social and economic standard. For the rest of this talk, however, I want to offer the other side of this process, namely the failure to build such channels the resulting emergence of a political economic consciousness among the drivers, and the political use of mobility as a technique of political mobilization. In other words, in this section will be the political economy to shape the everyday life of the city and transform it. So not every driver's navigation, of course, is as successful as Kong in securing strong connection. In most cases, being able to traverse social and physical space does not create new paths but rather makes drivers more aware of the existing barrier, barriers and limitations. In other words, the driver position in society exposed them to daily material reminder of larger political economic relations that constitute desires for alternative commodities and lifestyle while actually constraining their fulfillment. Access to an equal space, mediation of good, and profound knowledge of the city, therefore, does not just help the driver in their daily navigation of the urban landscape, they also factor in their emergence as central actor in urban politics. So let me give you one example of how this might work. Few days before the iPhone 4 was released in Thailand, Hong Motorcycle Taxi Group was involved in a remunerative transaction. 
A shop had received a large shipment of phone directly from the US and was selling a limited amount of 30 pieces a day, only one piece per person at 20,000 baht per unit, about 400 pounds. A shop owner from the neighborhood, for whom local drivers sometimes operated as messenger, asked them to go queue every morning for the phones, to buy as many as they could, so he could then sell them in his shop for 25,000 baht. Every driver who bought back a phone will receive 500 baht for the transaction. This dynamic not only made some money for the drivers and showcased their role as urban connectors, but also spurred long discussion among them regarding the phones. Chatting on the sidewalk, the drivers reflected on the multiple functions that were not included in their outdated machines. Their exclusion from the internet sphere and its consequences, as well as the unequal distribution of wealth that make a month of their income insufficient to buy one single phone. In all of this conversation, what the drivers longed for was not just participation in conspicuous consumption, but also access to form of social, economic, and informational mobility that the phone seemed to provide to its owners. The desire to participate in this mobility, to which they contribute, but from which they remain largely excluded, provided, therefore, a concrete language with which to articulate new form of political subjectivity and action. In this sense, the driver's mediation and their contact with commodities such as the iPhone, close enough to seem acceptable, yet too far to be affordable, make them deeply aware of the circuit of exploitation and inequality in which they operate. In other words, with an inversion of Marx's commodity fetishism, these commodities do not just obscure and replace social relations, they also offer to people who mediate them a concrete diagnostic for the same structural relation of inequality that Marx would have argued they mystify. In this sense, their role as messenger provides the drivers both with a daily experience of inequality and a chance to conceptualize it in relation to objects of privilege that they mediate and diffuse through the landscape of Bangkok. Mediation, in fact, is never a frictionless process. As goods such as the iPhone pass through the driver's hand, they become object of desires, but also material reminder of larger structural constraint to the driver's full participation in circuit of consumption and a potential locus for their politicization. As a result, not only their political consciousness emerged out of their everyday labor and the desire that this constitutes, but their very political struggle adopted mobility and immobility a central strategy to reveal and challenge existing social inequality, economic exploitation, and political oppression. So this brings us back to the red shirt protest with which I began this presentation. It was during this mobilization, in fact, that motorcycle taxi drivers acquired a more evident role in the internal functions of street protest by blocking, slowing down, and filtering the circulation of people, commodity, and information, which they normally facilitate. So before we can explore the driver's role in this protest, however, let me give you a quick overview of the political environment in which this mobilization happened, and how the government in power in 2010 came to be seen by them as limiting their fulfillment of their desire. So in order to understand how this desire became so central to political struggle in contemporary Thailand, we need to analyze the resilience of former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawatra. His policies, discourses, 
and the, the power that they contain and keep having among its supporters, in particular motorcycle taxi drivers. So Thaksin Shinawatra was elected Prime Minister of Thailand in January of 2001 with a solid majority and an ambitious as controversial plan to reform Thai politics and society. After a wildly successful first term as the first government in Thai history to fulfill an entire mandate, Thaksin was re-elected in 2005 by his landslide. His electoral success was based on a balance of authoritarian and decisive leadership and an obsessive reliance on marketing techniques. As a businessman, Taksin understood that mapping and satisfying people's desire for both commodities and access to form of political, informational, and social mobility would have been the central pillar of his government and his own personal endurance. It was precisely on these demands and desires that Taksin's economic and political success was predicated. Two years before his first premiership, he told his party assembly, and I quote, party members roam the countryside and villages to listen to the needs and desires of the people, end quote. As Niti, a prominent Thai intellectual, argued at the time, think new, act new, which was the Thaksin slogan for the first election, is just somebody taking the dream of Thai society and making them into policy, end quote. No one better than Taksin knew how to sense this unfulfilled desire among the mass of population for more goods and services from the government. Through Taksin policies, these popular demands, specifically the one voiced by rural masses and urban working class, were heard, sheltered, and suddenly reframed into valuable social forces and legitimate spring of entrepreneurship. What this meant was an unlashing of those desires, often framed in the language of consumption. So you have this whole shift by which citizens became clients, basically. And through that language, this whole kind of fulfilling of desire was, was put into, into motion. It was this unlashing and the massive popular support that he generated that costed him his position by a military coup with the surreal name of Council for Democratic Reform, who staged the coup to remove him from power on 16 of, of 19 on September 2006. So the red shirt mobilization was largely a response to this coup. And the system of inequality and double standard that Taksin, I believe, against his own will or volition, came to be seen as challenging. It wasn't until the March of, the March of 2010, however, that this movement morphed into a mass mobilization. The red shirt protest in 2010 which my larger work explored more in detail, was structured around three different phases. The first one, roughly from mid-March to the end of the month, was organized through massive caravans which circulated around the city to mobilize support and show the urban strength of a movement which was presented, and by the way still presented, in the national and international media as voicing only regional and countryside demands. The second one, by contrast, resemble more traditional form of street protest and entail uh, occupation at the Ratcha Prasong intersection, the core of, of Bangkok's central business district and the location of major shopping malls, hotel and entertainment venue. The third one, which roughly extended for a week of violent confrontation, which ended with the main anti-in dispersal that we started the talk with. Uh, in all of these three phases, motorcycle taxi drivers were central figures 
as guardian, movers, and occupiers of the space they traverse daily, but they have no ownership over. In all of the three phases, the political mobilization entailed a radical restructuring of the everyday life of the city, particularly its mobility. In all of the three phases, the very people who were operating urban mobility decided both to mobilize the city politically and to take control over its physical movement. So let me proceed in order and start with the first phase. On March 12, 2010, the Red Shirt leaders declare a million people march. Thousands of protesters started to move from the regional center to the city. National caravans converge on Bangkok to stage the larger protest in Thai history to date. For the two following weeks, caravans of cars, trucks, and motorcycles traverse the urban landscape of Bangkok almost daily. These parades brought usual traffic to a halt, redefined street and space of transit as pivotal political arena in the city, and challenged the state forces to control and contain a truly mobile protest. Heading them always was a crowd of motorcycle taxi drivers, taking advantage of their knowledge of the city and its shortcut, as well as their ease in flowing in and out of the protest. Taxi drivers became scouting vanguards, collector of information on the army and police movement, and feeders of directives between the front lines and the leader trucks, uh, which normally see at the middle of the protest. They operated not only as political mobilizer inciting the city, city dwellers to come out, join the protest, or just show their support, but also as mobile messenger, transforming their vest, bodies, and bike into itinerant political board. As physical and information mobilizer, the driver literally made the protest mobile. In early April, however, the red shirt strategy changed. One part of their supporter moved to an upscale commercial center, the Ratchaprasong intersection and its surrounding area. A stage was set up underneath the elevated SkyTrain, facing the huge ground in front of three of the larger shopping malls in Thailand. From there, the protesters took over an area of two square, meter, two square miles, sealing it off with homemade barricades. As Buran Musikapong, one of the protest leaders, told me, and I quote here, Ratchaprasong is not just a space of shopping mall, it is a symbol. It is a symbol of inequality and double standard, a symbol of the relationship between aristocracy and commoners. And now we're taking over this space to show that commoners can decide for themselves." End quote. So space of consumption and transit, from which many protesters were excluded, were appropriated and became space of discussion and dwelling. So we're kind of rehearsing a classical narrative of, of political protest and <laughs> occupation of public space. Many of the red shirt drivers talked to me about the feeling of having reclaimed the city that has been taking their sweat and lives. I come here every day to transport passenger, a driver operating in the area told me. Now I come to meet my friend from my village. I sit where normally cars run. I sleep where normally I can stop only for a moment to get the money from my clients. I feel like I own this city. I come back here every day to my village, my village in the middle of the city, end quote. So through this occupation, the protesters claim ownership over this area. Drivers became omnipresent at the barricade, which delimited the area controlled by the protesters. There, they operated as guards, guides for, for the protesters on the geography of the city beyond, uh, beyond the barricades, 
and collector of information on the movement of police and army around the area. Any of them, in fact, could get on a bike, take up a fake passenger, and move easily and unnoticed behind the line of the military force and observe their movements. Their presence, however, was not just important at the fringe of the protest. Mobility inside the area controlled by the, by the red shirt relied almost completely on their hands and wheels. Only motorcycle, in fact, could move with relative ease through the mass of people who had occupied the intersection. The role as mediator, transformers, and gatekeepers of both social and physical channel of the city became even more evident during the third phase of the protest. On May 13, a high-speed bullet tore apart the curtain of tension, uncertainty, and expectation that descended over the protest and the country at large. The bullet pierced the head of Sedang, a renegade army specialist and main military strategist of the Red Shirt, leaving him in a puddle of blood while he was actually giving an interview uh, to the New York Times. Signs of the imminent dispersal had been accumulating. In the previous day, electricity, water, and food services had been cut off from the area. The protesters were completely seed off by military forces, and Sedang was hit. By, after this event, violence broke open. Moving in and out of the protest became more difficult. The only group untouched by this transformation was the motorcycle taxi drivers, who once again became essential to the protest. When moving provision necessary to sustain tens of thousands of red shirts who were living inside the area became problematic, the driver knowledge of the hidden pal, underground parking lot, and back roads were central to keep the protest going. What I mean this quite literally, like what happened was that basically a lot of the drivers were picking, say, bag of rice and driving into underground parking lot through the army line, actually underneath the army line, and then popping out on the other side. So they were actually letting people uh, survive. Such ability was predicated on a tactical use of knowledge, but also of the driver's vest as a tool of struggle. Taking down the vest made them anonymous in the crowd, putting it on when moving around the city made them invisible transportation providers to the eyes of soldiers and protesters alike. Becoming invisible, in other words, allowed them to operate as unnoticed connectors and movers of people, objects, and information through the army lines. As the violet diffused in the area around Racha Prasong, this ability became fundamental to maintain the upper end inside the maze of Bangkok alleys. The driver's role were multiple. First of all, the drivers diffused provision, water, and fuel necessary to keep the barricade burning and to fill Molotov cocktail, both inside the protest area and to the fighter behind the barricade. Second, the drivers became mover of the red shirt military strategist who circulated from a front to another, distributing directives on where to establish new barricades, how to move through the alleys, and how to prevent the soldier from advancing or retreating. Third, they became inseparable from the red shirt leaders, who blocked inside the protest area, waited for an all-out army attack to the stage, knowing that their chance of getting out alive depend largely on the driver's ability to move in and out of the sealed protest area. Fourth, as the number of injured started to grow, the drivers operated as rescuer and first aid workers, picking up injured protesters, mounting them on their bikes, and driving them out of the protest zone to nearby hospitals. 
So the driver's invisibility to the state apparatus that marginalized them in their daily operation in the city now provided them with the potential of challenging state power and its ability to control and manage its territory and people. A similar dynamic has been described by Franz Fanon in an analysis of the role of Algerian women in the Algerian war and their uses of the veil as a tool of struggle. During the battle between liberation forces and French colonial officers, he reconstructs, wearing a veil in the Kashbah assured women invisibility to French soldiers, while not wearing one in the European city allowed, and I quote, the unveiled Algerian women, woman to move like a fish in the western water, end quote. Much like the women veil in the case of Algeria, the driver's best became a technique of camouflage and a mean of struggle. Both groups played on the complex relation between visibility and invisibility that structured their presence in the city by manipulating the clothes behind which they could become invisible and without which they could disappear in the crowd. After all, as both Deserteau and James Scott have argued, state power performed its mastery over Terry through sight, but making its subject visible and legible. Such characteristic, however, does not only frame the hold of state power, but also configure its weaknesses. State powers, in other words, is not just performed through visibility, but is also bounded by it. Eluding this case, therefore, means posing a significant challenge to it. It is not by chance that both the government of Wechachiwa after the dispersal and the military junta now since the, the coup decided to register and control the motorcycle taxi system. The drivers, in fact, posed a double defiance. First, claiming their position as connoisseurs of the urban terrain, they challenged state ability to hold and read its own territory. Secondly, by remaining invisible, or actually becoming invisible, to a state apparatus, they reveal its inability to dominate its own subjects. So to conclude, in this talk I have shown how an attention of a to everyday practices and their configuration in capitalist political economy can illuminate the action of the red shirts as well as the inner working of the Thai state by reconciling or trying to reconcile phenomenological and political economic analysis. In order to begin this exploration, I have argued for an investigation of the roles, demand and struggles of the operators of mobility who produce and sustain channels but often remain cut off from their advantages. Even if largely excluded from circuit enabled by their own labor, these operators retain, at least potentially, the ability to severe the connection that they participate in creating and mediating. If we accept their circulation is both a characteristic and an objective of capitalism, as first described by Marx and developed by David Harvey in the context of capitalism, and that exchange and not production is increasingly becoming a locus of extraction of plus value in the contemporary world, then it should not come as a surprise that mobility, whether material or virtual, and its operator are becoming the center of emergent form of political mobilization in Thailand and beyond. This interplay of mobility and mobilization is in fact evident not just in this case. From the Arab Spring to the Occupy movement, from anonymous internet attack to the operation of Somali pirates, late capitalism is seeing the unfolding of political conflict in which mobility becomes mobilization and shape is strategy and tactics. 
In Thailand, operator of mobility and their occupation of shopping intersection, stoppage of airports and traffic rearrange the political landscape. More globally, social media, bridges, port, highway, and financial nodes are, fi are figuring more and more prevalently in the global landscape of mobilization and changing its morphology. My work takes a first step in the direction of exploring how this emerging modality of political engagement are fusing new actors, strategy, and spaces of mobilization in a multiplicity of contexts. This approach, however, does not only reveal the importance of mobility, both as a characteristic and a strength of, of contemporary capitalism, as well as one of its fragile spots. It also invites us to reflect on the larger fragility of power, as they do social movements around the world, which Arab youth, college students, or farmers have been able to take hostage for months the core of global metropolis, challenging existing structure, and at times shattering apparently unbreakable political regime. While the red shirt failed to remove an unelected government and suffered significant losses, they also showed that a motivated group of protesters could take over the center of Bangkok all of it for months and keep the Thai government, police and army in check, forcing them to an internationally embarrassing use of force to clear them. In other words, they revealed some cracks and weak spots into the apparently unbreakable power of Thai state forces. Unfortunately, however, dominant theory of power in social sciences do not provide us with a good analytics to explore and understand this fragility. On one side, Michel Foucault has seen power as an ubiquitous apparatus of governments operating through mechanisms that produce its own subject as well as form of resistance, erasing a potential for emancipation while at the same time creating a space for resistance inside power. On the other side, James Scott has proposed a vision in which power is challenged by act of everyday resistance. While this vision is invaluable, in revealing the importance of non-state analysis, it relegates political action always to the defensive mode as an act of resistance, as an act of reaction. Both theory, for opposite reason, fail to account for both the emergence of the drivers and the red shirt at large as significant political actors able to take the city center hostage in 2010 and question a persisting econo uh, economic and hegemonic structure. This action, in other words, do not show power to be either an all-encompassing functional apparatus or either open to radical subversion to small act of resistance. Rather, they reveal power as a fragile construct, intrinsically riddled by contradiction, contingencies, and failures. A construct so open to challenges, as Lefebvre would have said, that it must rely on violence to endure. Such fragility have revealed here revealed by the driver's ability to play with their own invisibility, take over and filter urban flows, and bring state forces and capitalist circulation to, this knee, to their knees, open possibility for political struggles, take over, as well as the violent repression campaign, like the one that is taking place in Thailand today. In this sense, I do not argue that form of everyday resistance have intrinsically the potential to challenge or overturn domination. Note that these struggles are always inscribed into a disciplinary apparatus that does not allow for dissent. Rather, 
I'm sustaining that power is traversed by fault line and weak spots. It is only when attack on those specific spots that this apparatus reveals its cracks, contradiction and failure and open itself to challenges. In this sense, not every act of defiance or resistance retains the potential of questioning or unsettling power, as Scott's theory would lead us to believe. Their ability to do so is rather the result of tactical consideration, provisional cohesion, and timing that allows them to hit those specific spots. Blocking Ratchaprasong and the flow of people, commodities, and capital through this space reveal one of such spots in the case of Thailand. Through this action, power was unveiled as a shadow which belies the fragility of the Thai state beyond this appearance of stability and unity, an appearance that the red shirt were able to challenge. Even if the military eventually succeeded in removing protests from the street through the use of force and through a coup in the present, large chunk of the Thai population now have, so, have seen and are talking about how weak the power of the state can be when attacking the right spot, and how desperate its reaction can get. Once this fragility is revealed, the illusion of power becomes hard to reconstruct, and a space of questioning and challenges opens up. In this sense, the Red Shirt protest, as other moments of political mobilization in human history, mark a significant success precisely because of their ability to poke holes into this illusion, to unveil the intrinsic fragility of power, and as Red Shirt supporter likes to repeat, to open the eyes of its subject, both on the past and toward potential alternative futures. There are precisely these open eyes that the Thai army reacted to by staging this military coup, and that they're trying so hard to close down once again. In this sense, reflecting on the fragility of power does not only mean reflecting about this political possibility, but also means analyzing and showing how elite react by, to it by trying to mend these cracks and to reconstruct a new equilibrium as the dictator of General Prayut is trying to do now in the present. So failing to acknowledge this dynamic and more largely ignoring, ignoring the challenges that social movement can pose once they hit similar weak spots, as well as the reaction to these challenges, as in the case of the Egyptian uprising or, say, the case of the Berlin Wall, not only raise a, a theoretical dilemma for social sciences, but also question our own political stances. At stake is not just the risk of leaving social sciences stuck in a linear teleology of capitalist expansion, increasing exploitation and political repression, and ignoring the relevance of unstable equilibrium and transformation in social and political life. A more daunting danger faces us, that of either seeing acts of resistance everywhere or of overestimating the sturdiness of power without exploring its fragility and individuated cracks that can open new political possibility. Both, up, both approaches, I argue, have cornered the social sciences in a praxis of political immobility, a position that, in time of global mobilization, such as the one that we're now living in, I think we cannot afford if we want to have any relevance into the real world. Thank you.